Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are once again in our great country or around the world because we are broadcast around the world and we have numbers of listeners from different countries around the world, which is just kind of really neat. Uh, This is Judge Jim Gray. We're on the Voice America Variety Channel. Always happy to be with you here on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, where we talk about libertarian values. We talk about libertarian approaches, responsibility, financial and otherwise. We talk about making good decisions and being responsible for those decisions. So it's just fun. And we talk about issues that are maybe not discussed well enough or deeply enough among the other other people around the world uh, or certainly by other political parties. But that's what we're here for. If we employ those libertarian values, we will all rise together is the theme. And I deeply believe it. We have a real all rise today guest. It's a man named Steve Downing who has enormous credentials. Uh, credentials as a policeman uh, over the years. Uh, he's a, become a good friend, actually, and I'll, I'll state right away. I think, Steve, the way that you and I met was that I had already come out against our nation's drug policy and drug prohibition. And if I remember correctly, uh, you were in the audience and you introduced yourself and I said, look, you're a person that really should, should join us in LEAP, which was at that time known as Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. It's expanded. Now it's known as Law Enforcement uh, Action Partnership because there are other, so many people involved. But Steve Downing, welcome to All Rise. Thank you for being with us. And give us a little bit about your background. Uh, how were you raised? How did it happen that you became a police officer? Welcome and uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, sure, Jim. I was uh, I was born in 1938 uh, in a small town in Central California, Hanford, California, uh, between uh, Fresno and Los Angeles. Uh, at the time, it was a community of about 6,000. I was raised there my entire life. I went to uh, graduated from high school there. I went to a local junior college in a small town nearby called Visalia. I met my wife there. Uh, we married at uh, age 19. I worked as a forest ranger during the summers uh, <clears throat> in the Sierra uh, National Forest. And after I was married, I came out of the mountains and uh, worked for the Navy, building the Lamore Naval Air Station. And I saw that... Uh, uh, I was at a uh, dead end for any kind of career. I wanted to finish college. I read uh, an ad in the newspaper that Los Angeles Police was hiring, and they paid as much as $486 a month, which was a lot of money uh, compared to what I was making there. And I knew cops worked at night, and uh, I knew that if I could get a job as a cop and work at night, I could finish my education. and. So I ventured to Los Angeles. Uh, by that time, we had a child, uh, Michael, uh, who retired from Los Angeles Police Department as a deputy chief two years ago. Uh, 
Uh, and I ventured over uh, the grapevine and uh, went to the academy. And when I graduated, I got a trailer and got my wife and child back in Hanford and brought them over. And we set up, and I began a, a police career. Hmm. And uh, so I finished college, uh, uh, as I sought to do, but I did fall in love with the job. And I <clears throat> I worked many, many assignments. As you know, Los Angeles is a big city and a big city police department, lots of opportunities. I spent probably 12 of my 20-year uh, career in South Central Los Angeles at the policeman level, sergeant level, uh, a lieutenant, captain, uh, <clears throat> an area captain. And then when I made commander, I was in the Bureau of Special Investigation. And uh, that's when, uh, about the time that uh, President Nixon declared the war on drugs, and so I was in charge of organizing the Los Angeles Police Department's response to the war on drugs. Uh, we organized 18 geographic divisions for the street-level drugs and a centralized uh, major narcotics division for, uh, in many cases, global enforcement. I worked with the BNDD at the time, uh, helping as they became the DEA. We formed the first uh, interagency task forces. We formed the uh, first uh, narcotic intelligence network, and we went to work to uh, uh, <clears throat> achieve the goals of uh, the war on drugs, which was to reduce uh, the flow of drugs into our country and to reduce addiction and to reduce the violence associated with with drugs. Uh, and um, Year after year, uh, we failed. I considered myself a failure as a police executive because I couldn't accomplish the goals. And then one day I woke up and said, it's really not me, it's the policy. Uh, and it's a bad policy, and a better policy would be to regulate, legalize, regulate, and control all drugs, all drugs. And I recognized that... Um, we were destroying families, uh, putting uh, more children in foster care, putting more children on the street, and uh, and increasing violence. So that's kind of when I when I became an anti-drug war. So well, you're, um, <clears throat> you're you're jumping forward really yeah. fast, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take you back and and walk along these roads because it's really interesting to me, and I'm sure to our audience, Steve Downing. Um, first of all, I, I will explain the the sound quality here is not really good because uh, uh, you have hearing aids at this point, and so we need to we have a little echo there, but we're doing this anyway. So so thank you and thanks for bearing with us. But but in your trick your career development, how much time was it? where you were actually on patrol in the streets. Uh, what training did you have in order to get you into that position? And what did you learn, just being a street cop? Well, I went through the uh, police academy. In those days, it was a three-month academy, and you're certified under uh, the peace officer standards and training. So you go through the basic things in, in the police academy, learning the laws of arrest and and the laws that uh, you're you're going to enforce. In those days, there wasn't a lot of instruction about uh, about community relations. Uh, it was mostly about um, aggressive patrol, preventative uh, uh, crime prevention, 
things of that nature. Uh, one thing that stayed with me for all the years that I was in the police academy, for all the months I was in the police academy, followed by all the years that I was in the in the police department, it was confusing to me that the the academy was so military-oriented. We marched everywhere. We had instructors that acted like uh, drill instructors. They'd yell at you. They'd run you and tell you fell into the bushes. It was like a boot camp with the education on the side in the classrooms. But everything was military in nature. It was yes or no, sir, saluting, uh, standing inspection, and all of that. Everything in the group. But when you graduated from the academy, you were put in a car and expected to make individual decisions rather than reacting to group think. And so that always stuck with me. And it's, it's something that over the years I tried to change, but it's still present in a lot of academies. But the learning experience, uh, you, you, did, um, you did become part of a larger organization. You became a part of that culture. And you observed the good things and the bad things in that culture, and those stay with you. And probably the most important thing I learned in coming, in going through the academy and in the initial years of coming out of the academy was that there is this culture that has a tendency to stay within itself. In other words, you go to work and then you've heard of cop bars. They come and you go to the cop bar and they avoid mixing outside of their group. And early in my career, I realized that that was not a healthy thing. So my family, we always made a point. We, we did socialize with uh, friends in the police department, but we all always made a point to have a social life with regular folks that weren't in the in the police business. Uh, good friends of mine are doctors, lawyers, people in uh, business, people in finance, and that is a healthy thing to do for all police officers, and I encourage that to this day because Whatever you do in life, you shouldn't be in that bubble. You, you need a point of view outside the bubble. And I think that helped me a lot in being able to think outside the box in this business. Well, Steve, uh, first of all, I didn't know that we had this in common, but my I was at two duty stations when I was in the Navy. The first was the U.S. Naval Air Station in Guam. The second was the Naval Air Station in Lemoore. So I didn't know that we both worked there. I was there in about 1974, that sort of thing. Uh, and I'm, I still don't remember. I'm, I'm tracing it back in Hanford. They had a wonderful Chinese restaurant. Uh, what was the name of it? Do you remember? Uh, yes, it was the Imperial Dynasty. Imperial Dynasty. It became, I, yeah, it, it I, was in uh, it was in uh, Chinatown and China Alley. Imperial and it Dynasty. was uh, run and owned by a fellow by the name of Ernie Lee, and it became a very famous gourmet restaurant. Gourmet cooks from 
Los Angeles and San Francisco would travel to Hanford to have a special dinner there. I guess so. You're going to have to walk back wherever you were before, Steve. Your your uh, audio is, is not as good as it was before. But I can also say that uh, uh, as a as a police officer, uh, I was when I was at USC Law School. This was probably 1969, 1970. I went police car riding. Uh, we had a prosecutorial discretion case uh, or classroom, and I went riding. I think it was out of the 77th precinct, and I was in the back seat, of course, of a police car uh, as a police car riding observer and they'd gotten some form of call that there'd been a burglary somewhere in the neighborhood so they went up to some probably teenage african-american male just minding his own business standing there and they treated him really gruffly hey come here they said and what's you doing here and all that sort of stuff and of course they got no information from him and i asked them when we were driving away said you know why did you treat him like that that uh, oh you have to show you're tough and I, I still remember thinking to myself, boy, that's exactly not the way to treat people. That uh, when I was being raised uh, a little while ago, uh, I was it drummed into my head, Steve Downing, that uh, if Jimmy, if you get lost, what will you do? Correct answer. I will find a policeman. He's my friend. I don't think that that is taught anymore by anybody, which is a tragedy. So with regard to your training back then, uh, when you were first in the academy, uh, were you trained at all with regard to how to deal with the mentally ill people that you would encounter, uh, people that were under the influence, uh, how to keep situations from getting out of hand and becoming violent? Was there, was there anything in the training back then that addressed these really important subjects? Well, when I, when I went through the academy, uh, no, there wasn't. Uh, <clears throat> of course, in those days, the um, the widespread um, mentally ill on the street uh, wasn't that big of a problem as it, as it is today, uh, primarily because there was uh, different levels of care for the mentally ill in California then. As you know, that was all undone a number of years later. Uh, no, we uh, the, the kind of training that we got uh, in in terms of interpersonal training in the 1960s was um, uh, how to deal with a family dispute and separate people, uh, how to approach uh, people on the street. And I always remember that one thing that was stressed is that command presence is so important uh, because if you have a command presence, you're not going to be challenged. and if if you are challenged, you want to quickly take control. Well, of course, that's the wrong instruction because if you approach like the man you just described as a neighbor rather than as a suspect, if you approach him as a neighbor rather than somebody who has a superior power over them, if you approach them with a request rather than a demand, you're going to get a lot more. It's a lot smarter, but it's also what community policing is. I was not trained that way. I, uh, my partners, when I was a young probationer, didn't train me that way. But that doesn't mean that when I had my choice, uh, I didn't approach things, that, that I did approach things that way because... I saw that they were more productive. And as, 
And as the years have passed, in some cases, in some police departments, in some academies, this kind of training is starting to take place, and the the uh, anti-bias training is starting to take place. But in my day, that was not the case. It was command presence. It was a military posture. And, and the military influence in police departments, um, uh, it's been there from the beginning, and it continues to be there today. And in my personal opinion, it's something that's got to be completely wiped out. And the police officer needs to view himself as a neighbor and not uh, somebody in command or somebody occupying that neighborhood. They need to be a neighbor who is working with their neighbors to achieve the purpose of policing, and that is the safety of a community. Looking at Sir Robert Peel's primary principle, the police are the people, and the people are the police. I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that, uh, and again, I know the sound quality is not good, but it's just worth going through this with Steve Downing, who is my friend. I've known him for quite a while now. Uh, he has all of the background in the police department, highly regarded. He's got all the badges and the handcuffs and, and the rest, but uh, he became the chief Dep assistant chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, along with Chief Gerald Gates. Uh, so we've been in all of the positions. Positions. We've talked about his training, and now I'm interested in knowing to the degree, and I'm sure you are aware, uh, I heard, Steve, that the Sheriff's Academy here in Orange County, when they would have their uh, people in training, that they would actually tell them that they had to keep their 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 anger down, under control, to the degree that in training in the academy, they would actually spit in their face, and even which is a totally unpleasant thing to have happen, but you still have to keep your cool. You can still prosecute the person later on for an assault, but uh, you've, you cannot, you, you have to be professional. Uh, is that being done a lot more now in the various training academies, Steve, as far as you know, even though it was not when you were coming through? I missed that last part. Could you, uh, there's a little noise here. Did you repeat it? Yes, I'm just asking if uh, if there was training back when you were in, in the academy, uh, you were not trained to, for example, not to lose your temper and the rest. But now, as I understand it, in the training academy, sometimes they will actually spit in the, in the face of these people, telling them you've got to still keep your cool, keep your anger under control, even if that happens. Is this happening more and more now around the country that we're teaching people that to not lose their tam temper and, and overreact? I, I think that um, actually when I went through the academy, they would put you in the scenarios where um, they tried to get you to lose your temper. And, and they did train in that regard. I'm sure that today that the training is much more sophisticated and, and better designed. And the reason I say that is that over the years, I know in the Los Angeles Police Academy, um, when I was the deputy chief, um, we, um, for the first time, we hired psychologists to work with the uh, commanders at the training division in the design of these various classes. And that kind of training emerged in a formal way with the guidance of uh, psychologists and psychiatrists. Uh, in my day, we had, we had um, training uh, 
but the training was designed by the instruction staff, and you didn't really have the professional design to those kinds of scenarios. So, Steve Downing, you were the deputy chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, along with Chief Daryl Gates. Uh, how did that come about uh, briefly, and, and do you still keep in contact with Chief Gates? Well, um, I promoted through the ranks. Um, uh, you take in the Los Angeles Police Department, you take an examination, a civil service examination for each rank, and uh, you go through all sorts of examination processes. Uh, and from the rank of commander, I examined for deputy chief. I got on the list. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, one of my mentors, John <clears throat> McAllister, retired. At the time, I was number one on the list. I always accused him of retiring so that I could be made uh, before the uh, list expired. But uh. it's a competitive process. I, uh, I was... Uh, on the list, and uh, uh, actually, Ed Davis uh, appointed me uh, a, a deputy chief, and and uh, actually, no, Ed Davis appointed me commander. Daryl Gates appointed me deputy chief, and uh, my uh, that was actually my last assignment in the police department. I uh, became the deputy chief of personnel and training, all personnel training department psychiatrists, uh, all of that, uh, and I sat as the chair of the shooting review board. So that was the, the last three years yeah. of, of uh, my career with the uh, department before I retired, and Daryl Gates was the chief uh, the whole time that I was a deputy chief. I gotcha. So don't be modest. You were there as a deputy chief for about 10 years. What reforms, what changes were you able to bring to the Los Angeles Police Department? Well, one of the big things that um, I worked very hard at, which taught me the lesson, uh, doubled the lesson of how hard change is to accomplish. I tried very hard to demilitarize uh, the academy. I I worked at... Uh, <clears throat> changing our training methods, got a lot of pushback, uh, not only pushback from the academy staff, but pushback from the chief of police, uh, because he was, in many ways, a, a traditionalist. But I, I worked hard to change uh, the method of training and the, the level of, uh, of uh, kindness, if, if you would, um, in the department. And also, uh, a great deal of attention uh, during my time was given to the use of force, uh, introducing new uh, continuums, introducing escalation, de-escalation concepts, and uh, and I actually was very involved in rewriting uh, the use of force policy um, of the department uh, from the standpoint that uh, I was chief of personnel and training, but I also sat as the chair of the use of force and shooting review board. Mm -hmm. And so in, it was at that time that uh, we recognized that the policy is, is a very important thing. And in, in my mind, <clears throat> uh, basic statements generate interesting approaches if if you make 
the right kind of statement. And the statement that I made at the time and the, and the thing that we codified as the first uh, uh, precept, uh, so, so to speak, uh, on the use of force is that human life is precious. And the taking of a life, any life, should only be at a last resort. Well, when you make that kind of statement and you say only at last resort, that imposes many thought processes in when and how you are to use force. Use that amount of force necessary. Pull back from it when your your mission is 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 accomplished, but more than that, um, distance and backing off. There's there's no shame in that. Asking for help, there is no shame for that. Putting well, Steve, yourself I... in a position to talk a suspect down, there's yes. no shame in that. So we, we just. We just have a couple of minutes remaining before our break, Steve, but what you're saying, had you employed this, uh, this whole George Floyd situation would have, I, I can't say it had been avoided, but certainly de-escalated. Uh, I assume that the, this is something that that's really, really bothers you, bothers us all. When we come back from our break, we'll talk about uh, these issues and what you see is happening today in today's policing, uh, even the whole concept of defund the police, if I understand it correctly. I'll, we'll talk to Steve Downing, who was the deputy chief of the Los Angeles Police Department for 10 years under Daryl Gates. Uh, he was an, an avant-garde person. I wish that in many ways his recommendations would have been employed. Now I think we're beginning to, we'll talk about those as well as, of course, this whole uh, issue of the war on drugs uh, once we come back after these words. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. We are Americans all, strengthened by 
You are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. Again, you heard this is Judge Jim Gray, and we're All Rise, and, and we talk about real issues. Here we have a former 10-year deputy chief of police of the Los Angeles Police Department who tried to put in reforms, tried to to demilitarize the academy, training academy for police officers, with some degree successful, to some degrees not. But uh, before we come back to Steve Downing, as you know, my wife, uh, Dr. Grape Walker Gray, has asked me to give some form of intentional humor, and I, I'm falling back to some lexophiles, which I think are really fun play on words. So I heard that a dentist and a manicurist got recently got married, and now they fight tooth and nail. Well, okay, that was an attempt, but uh, at any rate, we are, we are, there we go. Uh, that is a certainly required chuckle from my guest, Steve, so you, you fit into that well. I can also say, Steve, that uh, recently I heard on the radio that the police were summoned to a daycare, academy, or daycare center where a five-year-old boy was resisting arrest. So at any rate, that was my, uh, my second attempt, but I didn't hear a chuckle after that one, but, uh, resisting <laughs> a rest. There you go. Okay. So we're getting there at any I rate, Steve, <laughs> thanks for being with us. Uh, we were talking about the George Floyd tragedy situation uh, where if my senses were correct, uh, Floyd was murdered by a police officer, and I, I don't know if the films were doctored or whatever, and I, I can't get into that, but but the, now we're talking about, in effect, the concept of defunding the police. Now, maybe that means take some of the money from police military and put it toward more social workers, um, people that are trained mili- mentally ill professionals, etc. But what are your thoughts with regard to what is going on in, t- in today's world in 2020 uh, with regard to the police, uh, the whole concept of defunding the police, etc.? Steve Downing? Well, I don't think that the uh, defunding concept has uh, really been narrowed down. Everybody has a different reaction to it and a different definition. And uh, I I know that some of my old police buddies uh, are just horrified, and they're just saying, oh, my gosh, this is just going to result in anarchy and chaos. I look at it a little differently, and uh, what, what, what my reaction was is it's about time this kind of conversation started, because as you know, most things start with politicians, and when politicians have problems, social problems that they have to deal with as a community or as a county, a state, uh, uh, a nation, uh most of the time, the first thing they do, their first knee-jerk reaction is pass a law and give it to the police to enforce. And then they hand it over to the police. The police are not trained, uh, do not have the uh, educational or intellectual levels to handle these problems. And then when they fail in handling the problems that they hand to them, uh, then there's a big, uh, <clears throat> a big outcry about that. So maybe this discussion of defunding will uh, bring about a little bit more thought in what is handed to the police. I don't know why the police is handed uh, uh, homeless problems. I don't know why the police is handed mental ill problems. I don't know why the police is handled the necessity to, as you know, uh, regulate and control 
uh, drugs in this country and and start a war over it uh, against the people. So there's a lot of things that are handed to the police that could perhaps be better thought out and handed to other institutions that exist or create new institutions to do that. Uh, uh, to to take on those jobs or to recognize that some of our existing institutions need more reform. For example, uh, why aren't we treating our teachers better as a society? Why aren't we putting our teachers at pay levels higher than police officers? They're certainly more important. Why aren't we funding our schools like we fund our police departments? Why aren't we giving teachers better pensions like we're giving our police officers? So all of those questions um, can become a part of the debate, I think. And if you're going to defund a police department, you should identify what functions they are no longer going to perform. And maybe we can get our police departments to the point where their primary job is to deal with um, crimes against persons and crimes against property. And just maybe we can get our clearance rates on homicides and, and crimes against people back up in the high 90s rather than down in the low 40s or 50s. And and that will give people a sense of justice. So they got to rethink all of this stuff. Steve, I've been trying to take notes when in the last three or four minutes while you've been talking. You said some incredibly important things there, and I'd never really thought of it precisely that way. That politicians, of course, anytime something goes wrong, the answer is to pass a law, and then you give the law to the police and say, "Well, go enforce it." Uh, they don't have the training, and you get into these areas. I mean, my goodness sakes, yes. How can the police be charged with resolving the homeless issue or with mentally ill or regulation control of drugs and the rest. You're, you're right that the criminal justice system was defi de defined and, and set on trying to protect us from each other. It's designed to do that. It's pretty effective at that, but it's not at all designed to protect us from ourselves, be it the homeless, the mentally ill, drugs or otherwise. So yes, yeah, I think what you said deserves to be be written, understood, uh, and and if you're going to defund the police, like maybe should be, then you also define what's no longer going to be performed by the police. And I can tell you, and now we can talk about drug policy, because uh, as you know, I came out against our nation's drug policy as a sitting judge back in 1992, and so I did my own studies, and I found that the United States was only half as successful in 1980 prosecuting homicides than that had been in 1970. Only half as successful in 1980 as 1970. Why? Because again, we ratcheted up the so-called war on drugs and it's only so much, so many resources we have. Let's put those resources into trying to protect us from people that, that would harm us or our property instead of trying to keep me from protecting myself against myself. So, so thank you for that. How did you, what was your, trace your line of thinking? Because you were the person that was setting up these task forces with regard to the war on drugs and the DEA and, the, and the, that sort of thing. Tell us about what you, caused you to come over to being a speaker for law enforcement against prohibition uh, and uh, to, to become, in effect, against the so-called war on drugs. Steve Downing. Well, you know, any any executive uh, wants to be successful at what they do, 
And my challenge was to be successful in meeting the goals of the war on drugs. And those goals were to stop the um, flow of drugs into the country, to reduce addiction, uh, to reduce violence associated with drugs. And when I started, you know, uh, we would do the show and tells. We made a big seizure. We got a whole kilo, and we got five handguns, and we got $2,000. And then uh, six months later, the seizure is is 10 kilos, and a year later, we're seizing uh, warehouses full and uh, war-level weapons and millions of dollars. And so pretty soon you realize that everything that you have tried in order to achieve this goal you fail. And so nobody likes to be a failure at their job, but I realized that there was what we were doing following this policy that began with Nixon and uh, <clears throat> everything that we were doing failed. And so I finally came to the realization that the policy itself is the failure. The policy itself, the the unintended consequences was really uh, to create a war on the people. And that's what we did. We we warred against our own people. We increased incarceration in this country to the point that, as you know, five, we're 5% of the world's population and we're 25% of the world's prisoners. So isn't that an awful statement for the land of the free? Uh, and that's why I changed my mind about Trump policy, but it was so embedded, and it was so racist, as we discover, as we go along and see what we're really doing. Uh, it's time to change this, but it's so embedded, as you know, um, that change has been very, very difficult. The, the incremental steps, uh, we're still going through them. You know, we finally got people to recognize that the, the, the sky didn't fall when marijuana was legalized and regulated. And now we have to come to understand that that same kind of regulation and control for all drugs and regulated by different approaches, take it completely away from the police and no longer will they have all of this informant jailhouse informant and street informant and working on probationers to turn and go make buys for them when they shouldn't, when they should be in another environment. All of these harms from the drug war that have not only damaged society, but completely corrupted our law enforcement organizations because of the way they've invented to fight this war on drugs. Uh, these are all the things that led me to say we got to make a change because we're harming ourselves. We're warring against our own people. And then well, I met Steve, you. 
<laughs> well, and thank you for that. Steve Downing, on behalf of our country, thank you for who you are and what you have done of speaking out because you have all of the qualifications. Like I said earlier, you know, got all the handcuffs and the guns and the badges and the rest. So you have a credence to you. Uh, we had a saying when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office as a federal prosecutor that if you, with regard to snitches, that if you get down in the gutter with dogs, you get up with fleas. And, and that's pretty much the way that this was set. But before we keep going on this, I'd like to walk back a little bit because you're uniquely situated to be able to talk about this. What is the status of police unions and, and how heavily are they involved in uh, allowing police officers who, have, who are, make mistakes or, or who are actually not, not suited to be police officers from getting fired? How, how strong is that? And, and should there be any changes with regard to those relationships? Um, it's it's beyond strong. It has reached the point uh, that it is corrupting of our institutions. Uh, unions are supposed to be concerned with working conditions and and uh, wages, and they are supposed to be involved in collective bargaining. But over the years, the police unions have discovered their treasuries are very influential, and police unions have, in, in effect, bought our pol politicians. And our politicians that are bought by the police unions also play that game of tough-on-crime. And so they, they have the advantage of associating with the past reputation, and I think that's changing now, but associating with the reputation of of, of the great police officer, the, the, the great man in blue, and, and at the same time, they're getting their money, which gets them into office. They're getting their money, which allows them to pass tax measures like they do in the town I live in, and... <clears throat> My town is a good example. The majority of our council and our mayor have been basically put in office by police union money. And I have been convinced in the 10 years I've lived in this city that our police union controls City Hall for whatever they want. And their collective bargaining is done uh, behind closed doors. There's no sunlight to it until the council votes, and the things that they get go far beyond working conditions and wages. It gets into the disciplinary system. It gets into it to the, the, to the point that the union is involved in, in uh, the disciplinary de decisions to the point that crony, crony lines develop and crony groups develop within the within the police organization and it, it's a very very corrupting process and as you know um, a, a, across the nation police unions have used their power with the politicians to basically close the door on transparency just now are we starting to get little eeks of legislation here and there across the country that is revealing uh, uh, use of force and is revealing the investigations 
that are involved in also involved shootings. And more and more, as we get to review those things, as sunlight is shined on them, we are seeing use of force decline. Just the fact that they know the transparency is there, use of force is declining. And a good example of, of this union power, when they first started it in California to close uh, transparency to police disciplinary records, the, the police were buying the politicians to get this legislation passed. And the chiefs of police and administrators, and I was one of them, I was the deputy chief when this started, we resisted it. We said, this is harming our ability to gain the trust of the community. Because, like, when I was a captain, uh, I was a captain in Southwest Division, 98% of African American. When I went in there, we weren't liked. It was after the Watts riot and things that followed that. And I tried to establish a communication with the community. One of the first things I did was uh, I, I got about 30 uh, ministers to come in because I thought that they were the best communicators and we could have a relationship and get the word back and forth. But what I was able to do in those days I was able to tell them, when I got a complaint and investigated it, I was able to tell them how I investigated it, what I found out, and how it was resolved. Okay, so the union shut all that down. Captains and commanders and chiefs were no longer able to do that. So what's happened over the next 50 years, since 40 years, since they got this accomplished, not only have police administrators not been able by law to explain how they administer discipline, but they have become comfortable with their decision-making not being exposed to the, to the public. And therefore, that decision-making gets more and more weakened by the influence of the politicians and the and the influence of the unions on the police administrators. And so they will make decisions that they know will not be exposed to the public, and therefore they will not have to explain their decision. Now that we're starting to change that, come out of it with like SP 1421 that became in effect in, in um, California last January, they're starting to see that people are getting the investigations, looking at the decision-making process, and asking questions that are very uncomfortable. So to answer your basic question, I think that police unions across the country have become a very, very corrupting influence and are basically the prime responsibility for what we are experiencing and what we're seeing today. Look what happened in Minneapolis uh, after they arrested those officers. Police union actually had a walkout. Right now, I picked up intelligence yesterday that the, the police unions across the country are trying to promote a blue flu on July 4th just to teach us, the people, a lesson. And that is so corrupting and so bad for our society. 
We need to get a hold of these police unions and get their collective bargaining back. We need to find a way that politicians do not accept money from unions for their campaigns, either their personal campaigns or their campaigns to raise taxes. We need to focus. We need to put teeth in the laws that say you don't take a campaign picture with a man in uniform. We have a law against it. There's no teeth in the law, uh, and they change a patch on the uniform, and that it's marginal cheating, but they get away with it. So what I'm saying is that I think probably the greatest contributor to the co corruption of our policing across the United States is the emergence and strength of police unions today and and the boundaries that they have crossed as a le legitimate collective bargaining entity. They've gone too far. Their money is too powerful uh, and too influential in our city halls across the country. Well, Steve Downing, uh, again, that recitation is just remarkable. You're the man who knows. You have the credibility to pull this off. I am asking you as a public service, will you please write what you were just talking about with us for the last three or four minutes? Write a magazine article uh, about this, about how it's evolved, about where it's taken us, about your conclusions. I think that the whole idea that no politician, it should be illegal for any politician to accept any money from any public employees union. Uh, it's corrupting and show all of this. Would you agree to do that? And I will I will help you to the degree that I can and also help you try to find a publisher. But this is information that we really must get out to the public. Would you agree to do that? I've got you on the spot here. Uh, I sure would. I, I, I write to these things all the time in a, in a little uh, local paper in my, my town and uh, <clears throat> it'd be a matter of just pulling all this stuff together. We're we're right now in uh, a very similar battle here in Long Beach. Uh, City Hall, in my opinion, has been corrupted for too many years by our union, and, and that's what we're picking out. And we need we need independent civilian oversight of our police departments, and we need it quick. Well, who better than Steve Downing? And yes, you write columns. It's called The Beachcomber, uh, News and Views of Greater Long Beach in California. And I know that you've done that. I know that you've gotten the enmity of a lot of uh, people that are in city council and, and the Long Beach Police Department. Uh, in the few minutes that we have remaining to us, Steve, and again, I, I take that as a yes, I will, so I'm going to hold you to that, and I'll do everything I can to help. But this is information, that, particularly considering the source, folks, this information that people simply need to get out there, and, and we need to give some, some assistance to others that would help us do this, uh, and who better than Steve Downing, our guest. Uh, you do live in Long Beach, California. Uh, as I understand it, you know, after you have retired, you become quite vocal writing this uh, column in the Beachcomber, but uh, what what abuses, in effect of what you've seen, you've shown us already, but what particular abuses have you seen that you see in the Long Beach Police Department with regard to these sorts of things, Steve Downing? Oh, I see uh, from the standpoint of the community, the the, the, uh, <clears throat> the absence of, of real communication, uh, real community-based uh, policing. Uh, our city is expert at PR, but uh, 
when you get beyond the PR, you see that none of it is supported by facts. Um, in the recent uh, uprisings, uh, our city was severely destroyed, and and we had our police officers shooting rubber bullets at peaceful protesters while they're being ordered not to arrest looters. So, <clears throat> and 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 uh, looking at mutual aid and bringing in the national guard, I saw. Uh, total incompetence at the top. We've seen uh, anonymous writings by police officers that want to do a good job, and they just feel that uh, they're getting the wrong direction at the, and that they, the wrong behavior is not being uh, handled. Uh, again, the, the union is too strong, and our politicians at the same time defend, defend, defend uh, what is... Um, undefendable, not defendable. <laughs> uh, kind of like uh, somebody made the, said the expression the other day is like uh, a bunch of pickpockets uh, gathered watching a crowd watching another pickpocket be hung for a crime of pickpocketing. And uh, what we need is um, independent oversight in this city, just like many cities across the nation. Uh, that can uh, be accompanied, that is accompanied by transparency to everything that involves the use of force and integrity and report writing. And also, Jim, you're a judge. And I think that we use an expression too often in our police and our criminal justice system. I have never seen a judge say the district attorney is my partner, but yet we always say from the police standpoint, the police always say the district attorney is our partner, and the district attorney should not be their partner. They should be part of the check and balance of the system, and the district attorney should stand up when they see misconduct. And that is not happening. The district attorney should stand up when they see uh, false evidence being presented, but they'd rather written win a, co uh, a case than expose false evidence or, or, or an officer lying on the stand. Yeah. That has to stop. And we, we have to quit looking at police prosecutor as a partnership. They're part of a system of checks and balances. Well, Steve Downing, uh, and that feeds uh, into this whole mess that we're looking sure. at today. Thank police you. and prosecutors are too cozy, and and all too often, police prosecutors and the rest of the justice system is a little bit too cozy. Steve, I, I agree with you. We've run out of time. We're going to have to have you back, but thank you for your insights. I'm going to label this interview, Make the System Work, that who better than Steve Downing, former Judge Jim Gray, to address this issue. We have no vested interest except to have the right things happen. So you've heard it here, folks. Lots of nuggets on All Rise, yet again, with our special guest, Deputy Chief of LAPD, Steve Downing. Steve, thank you for being with us, my friend. There you have it. We are here, here and again next week or any prior uh, show on demand here at the Voice America Network. But uh, with this thing, I then say as Judge Jim Gray, thank you for being with us. Join us again next week and life is good. 
Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.